0: Before we get to today's episode of the Glossy Beauty podcast, we have a quick message from our sponsor, Stitch Labs. Stitch Labs is an operation management platform for modern brands. If you're a growing brand looking to streamline your operations, Stitch Labs is here to help. Brands like Brooklinen and Thinks are using Stitch to do some amazing things, like open pop-up stores or set up international warehouses in incredible timelines. To learn more, head to stitchlabs.com. That's S-T-I-N-E tchlabs.com helping brands execute on big ideas quickly. Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy, and today's guest is Charles Denton, The chairman and CEO of legacy skincare brand, Erno Laszlo. In this episode, we talk to Charles about the benefits of failure, the differences between the American and Chinese customer, and the brand's new efforts in sustainability. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty podcast, we have Charles Denton, the CEO of Erno Laszlo. Welcome, Charles.
1: Thank you. Welcome.
0: Charles, tell us a little bit about your background. You have been a longtime executive, served as the CEO of Moulton Brown, and now the CEO of owner Laszlo. What kind of attracted you to the beauty market?
1: I don't think I've natu- uh, deliberately moved into the beauty space. Uh, I think it's the, I've been attracted by ex- uh, exciting brands with great stories, and they just happen to be in the beauty space. Uh, um, One of the advantages of working in this industry is it's very diverse and you have so many different uh, uh, organizations, different people. I've met a lot of uh, um, inspiring individuals, so I think that in itself is exciting. And of course, it's very focused on the consumer. You do really get an opportunity to see the impact you have on people's lives, which is inspiring in itself. But I wouldn't say that I am a a beauty exec per se, I just like... um, strong stories true stories uh, that are driven by a compelling mission and if that resonates with me as an individual then I throw myself into that project
0: so talk to us a little bit about Molten Brown it's been a while but you Mm. know when you came to the brand in the late 80s um, it was on the brink of collapse and you really turned it around by the time you sold it in 2005
1: yeah, so Molton Brown is a, a wonderful story. The, the company was founded as a hairdressing business in 1972 um, by a husband and wife team. And they had a, a, a vision on, on uh, producing a natural solutions, so natural haircuts, natural styling. They used to finger dry the hair rather than use hair dryers. And then that led naturally to them having products formulated in the back of the salon for use in, in, in um, the hair studio. Um Fast forward to 1989 and they had their own um, labs, their own factory uh, based at the manor that they lived it uh, outside of London uh, and uh, unfortunately the um, country at the time, uh, the market went into recession. So they found themselves with one door in in, in Mayfair, and uh, I think a relationship with Barneys in New York at that time, uh, um, but this huge warehouse full of products, um, but a great reputation. So unfortunately, the company went into receivership. And uh, I uh, was asked um, by the new investor who came in to uh, to remain involved. I joined just a little bit before that happened. I'll hasten to add it wasn't my fault that it went into receivership. (laughs) Uh, And um, our job at that point was – well, he he, uh, believed and I I supported this belief that – natural products that were designed to improve people's lives um, by using botanical ingredients and so on uh, were were part of the future. Uh, And uh, uh, the hairdressing wasn't really something that we would focus on. So we set about uh, um, reimagining Moulton Brown as a a lifestyle brand that... approached people's lives from a point of view of understanding their condition and what we could do to improve that condition, help them sleep, help them be more active, arrive in better shape, all of these sort of ideas, and then have formulated products that supported that. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be part of a great team that uh, um, realized that vision. We started off as, with a factory we inherited. We uh, um, to keep the factory going, we decided to make miniature products um, that we could sell to hotels. That became uh, a sampling marketing strategy. In retrospect, it was a survival plan at the time, but it became this shrewd marketing plan. Uh, and from that, we found a lot of consumers who discovered the product in in. in very sort of high-profile environments where where they had good memories. You know, they were on holiday with their family or whatever, and when they came back home, they wanted to continue to experience that 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 relationship with the brand. And so that led us to opening up department stores and stores, uh, and the, if you like, the hotel business generated cash, which then funded our ability to then create a more direct to consumer facing. It was a direct to consumer sampling strategy, if you like, but we didn't have a physical space. That we'd rolled out, so so that followed. And uh, fast forward to 2005, we'd gone from a business that was less than a million uh, uh, in revenue to 60 million plus, uh, 60 million pound revenue, and the company was acquired um, for, in today's money, around 230 million dollars, which was quite an exciting journey. And that was my university. I, I left school when I was uh, sixteen and a half. I was uh, from a single parent family. Uh, my mother sort of dragged us all up—my brother and sister and I—and unfortunately, I went, 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 we were bankrupted uh, at that time as a family. My father had uh, lost all of our funds, so um, I went straight into into business, if you like. And um, when I joined Moulton Brown. I, that became my education. I was under a great mentor who uh, guided me through all aspects of business. And what was so exciting about Multibrand is that we were vertical. So we had our own manufacturing, we had our own lab, warehouse distribution and then ultimately we had our own stores uh, our own department stores so we were truly integrated as a bit as a business so I could tell you the cost of a label going on a bottle right the right way through to you know how many times that consumer came back into my store and you know purchased and what they purchased and why they did it so it was a very very good education for me and then after that I left um, and went to run a children's charity hospital I, th- I felt that <clears throat> That became the next intellectual challenge and exciting opportunity. And I did that for five years. And then towards the end of that, the opportunity came up to acquire Erno Laszlo.
0: Tell us how Moulton Brown prepared you in a way to tackle this legacy company that had been around since the 1920s.
1: (laughs) well, the difference between Moulton Brown and, say, Erna Laszlo is the founders of Moulton Brown were still alive, uh, and um, so I had the advantage of being guided by them in terms of their philosophy, their vision, what they cared about, what the rules that they had established around the brand. Uh, um, the, the problem with Erna Laszlo in some regard is that it'd been through different periods of different ownership, 10 years with one owner, another 10 years with another, I think over 30 years, three different owners in more recent times and each each set of owners had a different interpretation of what the brand stood for so I didn't have the advantage of being able to call Dr. Laszlo and say well what what was your intention here Um, so we we I think had to spend had to rely on our consumers probably more than anything else to understand you know what the brand stood for we spent I spent a lot of time talking to consumers who who even know knew dr. Laszlo, and that was very enlightening so that was a, a, a disadvantage um, but at the same time an advantage because he wasn't standing over my shoulder <laughs> so uh, and setting rules so um, the good thing about molten Brown for me uh, as a as a as a a learning opportunity was what I mentioned earlier we, you know, we were direct to consumer we had our own stores We were, I think we were almost the first brand to launch um, uh, an e-commerce platform uh, I remember when we put our product online way back when uh, um, it cost us I think 400,000 pounds to launch an e-commerce platform back in you know the late uh, in the 90s uh, and uh, at the time it was a bit like putting a brochure online with an ability to buy product it was almost a, a sort of mail order online type proposition but that taught me an awful lot in terms of where the future was going um, the stores taught me an awful lot in terms of how to in, uh, how to um, engage with the consumer and how much rich data there is in a physical environment we didn't nearly have the technology to gather it then we, that we have today um, it also in, encouraged me to learn more about the value of consumers have been with you a long time um, if you molten Brown, as I said, started in 72 and I got involved in 89, and there were many consumers have been with the brand 10, 15 years. and they, they were a very rich source uh, for, uh, for me in terms of what was right, what was wrong, what they'd like to see, what problems we solved, how we could do more, how we could be better. And I think the other thing that uh, uh, was very important is I grew up in molten Brown in a, a risk-averse, a, a not in a non-risk-averse environment. Uh, and we, by definition, uh, were all about how do we survive. And to survive, in this instance, we were growing towards opportunity. And that meant trying lots of different things and seeing what would work. I remember when we went into ho- hotels, many people mocked the idea and thought it was crazy, you know, premium brand in the toilets, you know, this is gonna send a the wrong message. I remember a distributor in the Middle East saying that you're gonna be known as a toilet brand uh, (laughs) because we were putting the product in that environment. You look back, it was it worked out quite well, but you could understand it was a risk, perhaps at that time. Uh, so, and we took many, many risks with 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 the brand. And the, the point being is that we were allowed to, we were encouraged to. We built a culture that said, you know, embrace failure, learn from it, and move on. And that was, I think, the big change for us. We we moved very fast. It was it was all about momentum. It was all about taking risks. Uh, if it worked, great. Let's move in that direction. If it didn't, what can we learn? Let's move in another direction. And I believe that's really how. The market operates today more than ever. Uh, If you you need to succeed today, you need to build a culture where risk-taking is embraced and failure is tolerated and, in some respects, encouraged.
0: How do you do that, though, from a financial point of view with a brand that's been around for over 90 years?
1: Well, I think that's the problem that a lot of heritage brands are facing today because their organization, if they live within a large organization that isn't, does, doesn't have a culture built around that, uh, you know, you're, you're the brand manager, come on, you have to tick certain boxes, grow it by X amount and move on. You've done five years here, move on to the next one, exact, and these sort of career paths. That's not conducive to the, the, the world that we're living in today. So um, for us, the advantage was that we were not part of a big group. Um, We have our own private investors, private equity backed. Um, So you have to align your interests with theirs, obviously. They have to understand what your strategy is. Um, They have to embrace that. Um, And if you are able to set out a clear plan in terms of direction, but make it very clear that you may need to deviate from this for good reason, and they accept that, and you Give yourself enough room financially to make mistakes. Uh, we've made some mistakes. Uh, um, we've made some big mistakes. Never too big, in the, to, in the sense it would sink the business, but big enough to matter and big enough to get noticed. But it's not built. There was no criticism around. It was okay. We tried that. It didn't work. Where do we go next? We've launched new store relationships within a year i had to close them uh, we we opened up the institute in soho which was a very interesting learning opportunity for us but felt that it was in some ways a backwards move not a forwards move so we closed it and moved on uh, so each of these uh, uh, um you know we've launched products that didn't work we've, we've discontinued them we, you've got to just be comfortable the, the worst worst case scenario is you you do nothing you, you're you're committed to a path, and no matter the the information you're receiving along the way, you, you sort of ignore it because remaining committed to the path in somehow is easier than accepting you made a mistake.
0: Talk to a little talk to us a little bit about um, your retail approach because I do think it's very interesting that. You did open that institute in 2012, which was modeled after the original Erno Laszlo Institute um, from the 20s. Mm. And you closed it very soon after. Mm. But now you're moving into stores again Mm. here in New York and in Mm. China. What is that about?
1: Well, I think the institute, the reason the institute was visualized before uh, was that I felt that we needed a place of worship for the brand, somewhere that we could anchor the brand. We're a New York brand, and we didn't have a New York presence. Although I felt it made sense to have that. Uh, um, but I was thinking from the brand point of view. I wasn't really thinking from the consumer point of view. Uh, and when we revisited what the brand stood for, that's what we presented in Institute. Here's a, it was a membership-driven business, so let's have membership. Uh, it was about providing tailored ser- uh, treatments, so let's do this. Uh, so we really, uh, uh, wrongly, I think, l- r- sought to, to uh, present the brand and... Although that was executed in a wonderful way, it was beautiful, Uh, coming to the Institute was a great, I think, quite exciting experience. It became certainly, uh, um, it delivered on the Instagram level, certainly, and people loved photographing the the crystal chandeliers and the red leather staircase and things like that. But if you think about it from a consumer point of view, uh, uh, insisting that someone spends maybe 90 minutes in a tailored treatment because... Our, our treatments were at the highest level, and every single treatment was unique to the individual. But it was a bit rigid, and and it was a little bit inaccessible, being down in Soho. And the consumer that wanted that type of treatment typically was living uptown. So there was a sort of mismatch. If I was to uh, recreate that model for that consumer, I would build that space uptown, and. I wouldn't perhaps deviate too much from the the, pro- the protocols, the treatments, uh, um, but it would not be uh, uh, it wouldn't have been presented the way that it was presented. So we we sort of created a museum, if you like. It was it became a a place of um, homage to to uh, Dr. Laszlo, uh, a living museum, uh, and that's not really relevant. Uh, it was great for our international. Consumers coming in and taking photographs and so on, it delivered on that level. But it didn't really have a reason to exist beyond that uh, from, a, from a, uh, the services and proposition that are that more relevant to the target consumer. And the other thing you've got to bear in mind is the Erna Laszlo consumer age, uh, when we uh, inherited the brand uh, in 2011-12, um, the consumer was around 55 years old. Uh, um she's now or they are now because we have 25 percent of our consumers are men um, they are now in their early 30s so um, roughly 31 32 years old so if you then say well if that's your core consumer what type of experiences do they want from a space and uh, what services do they want what engagement do they want do they want to come in for 90 minutes or do they want to come in for 20 minutes uh, and so when we Uh, reimagine the spaces and the reason for those spaces, they're going to be consumer-centric as opposed to brand-centric.
0: We'll be right back. If you're a growing brand, you've probably heard that an ERP is the next step in your operations. But in this fast-changing world of e-commerce, you can't afford to lose the agility, speed, and innovation that got you to where you are today. That's why today's fastest-growing brands are choosing Stitch Labs as their operations management platform to streamline complex operations without losing flexibility and speed. Whether you're looking to open a pop-up, run effective pre-order campaigns, or expand internationally, Stitch Labs is here to help you execute on every crazy big idea quickly and at scale to learn more head to stitchlabs.com that's s-t-i-t-c-h-l-a-b-s.com helping brands turn their operations into their biggest advantage do you think that some of those levers that you pulled back in 2012 could work though today, like the membership model. Like you see things like Rent the Runway working or you know services like at a heyday or a dry bar seem to be working. Do you think any elements of that could be integrated in the stores this year?
1: Yes, I do. I think there are, uh, uh, membership is something that we like uh, as a concept. Uh, I think what membership demonstrates and what we want to demonstrate to our consumers is that we're invested in the journey with them. So w- we want to show that we, understand what their ambitions are, their goals are, and that we mutually invest in that journey together. And I think that's a big opportunity, and I think membership allows you to do that. Uh, it sort of creates a mutual commitment to each other. Um, and there are many benefits that can flow from a membership uh, in terms of understanding the consumer from a data point of view, but also from the added value that you can bring to that consumer in terms of access to, you know, 24-hour dermatologists or, or um, special events. Uh, we we we, we we just did a focus in China um, during one of the most polluted. Uh, periods of the year, and um, um, uh, the, the we did wine tasting. Um, so Dr. Lazlo believes that red wine was a great antioxidant, and so to do wine tasting in the in the spaces, uh, and then link that back to a conversation around pollution and detoxing and so on was a very rich experience. So they learned a lot about wines and different regions and where wines came from, but also it was connected back to uh, uh, um, something relevant to them from a skincare point of view. So I can see spaces having much more of that type of role to play um, bringing the relationship you see if you, if you think about our our role <clears throat> we see ourselves like a cheerleader almost uh, partnering with our consumers on their journey and through conversation we uh, uh, want to understand more about where we can add value so if we're your best friend you know when do you need me when am I there for you Uh, and how do I add value Um, and I can add value in lots of ways I can add value with a product that's very simple isn't it you've got a problem a problem or concern here's a product that meets that but I can also add value with a service I can add value with uh, entertainment education there's lots of ways to add value so these spaces allow us to journey beyond product and get closer to consumer understand more about those moments where we can add value and then be innovative in terms of how that is presented or materializes.
0: So you're opening Shenzhen in June, yes, and some other places in China as well as mm-hmm. here in New York. Mm-hmm. But these spaces, which you call them, not mm-hmm. stores, mm-hmm. necessarily don't have revenue goals right now.
1: No, they don't. Um, I, I, we have uh, what we call a return on on time invested. So when someone leaves the space, I'm not interested on how much money they spent. I'm interested on uh, in the idea that was that time well spent? You know, if if I if that person was to walk out of the space and I was to say, was that a, a, a good hour or was that a good half hour? Or was that a good 10 minutes? If they say that was the best investment, investment of my time, then we've succeeded. So that's where the value lies. So we, we're we really interested not in what the revenue that flows from that, but the sense of um, the, the quality of the relationship that flows from that.
0: Do you think that's going to be easier to do in China than, say, someplace like New York, which is more crowded and... You know, people are more time-starved.
1: I wouldn't say that uh, New York's more crowded than China. <laughs> <laughs> it depends where you go. Um, it's, it's very interesting. The, the, the markets are at very different level stages in terms of maturity. Uh, um, the Chinese consumer uh, is very discerning, very knowledgeable, um, uh, has a lot of... Uh, um, Experience and exposure to brands. Uh, uh, they know more about the brands, if you like, than, than say, uh, perhaps a, a North American consumer might, uh, um, given they've been so hungry for that. Uh, um, the rules by which they value those and judge those brands is slightly different today. And what they want, uh, the, the lifestyle world, that they come, the world they come from, the world they're living in, has got a different dynamic. So if you was to say, you know, what does a Chinese consumer Want that's different to an American consumer. Uh, um, for example, you might say that an uh, American consumer buys skincare, a Chinese consumer invests in skincare. It's a different mindset. Um, an American consumer may think of their total body, whereas the Chinese consumer typically has thought more about their face. Body's becoming a big thing in, in China, but face has really been the focus for, for a long time um this idea of of uh, um there are a lot of similarities with sort of the more independent spirit coming through the, the fact that you can live your life the way you choose to live and associating your, yourself with brands that represent that and support that and they're looking for inspiring ways to improve their life so they're looking for inspiration That's the chinese consumers mindset is inspire me Give me, give me insights into uh, exciting alternative ways, and that's what they. So that's why they'd be, say, interested on a tour through Italy or France or New York. You know, give me. The, the, that, that local take on, on life and what's inspiring about that and what can I take from that and, and experience in my life so that's, that's how we position ourselves we share what's inspiring about being a New York brand and we, we share what it means to be a, a successful woman in New York and balancing all the different things going on in their lives and elements of that resonate very well with the Chinese consumer and they bring that into their lives by moving, you know, g- engaging with our brand
0: What's your stance on Tmall, and also, you know, the importance of key opinion leaders and influencers in China?
1: Hmm. Very good question. Uh, our strategy is that we are digital first in China. Um, you know, they—if you look at the way the Chinese consumer lives their life, everything resides in their cell phones. Everything. So um, today. Uh, if you take WeChat, for example, which is an entire universe, uh, um, you pay all your bills, you you manage your life, everything is um, um, controlled in this space. So uh, if you then, if you sought to divorce uh, buying the product or learning about the product from that, that would be a little strange, wouldn't it? So, so. To be on Timor, which is the dominant platform and the trusted platform, uh, and continue to maintain that relationship in a digital way, I think is absolutely logical for us. Um, So we've had a lot of success with Uh, Timor. We set out uh, to lead with um, our masking strategy in China because we have a very uh, strong um, uh, reputation in China for our masks. And I was very pleased to see actually in q Four of last year, uh, if you compare us alongside all the premium brands, and I'm talking Le Maire, Lauda, Shiseido, SK2, all these big brands, uh, um, we uh, uh, appeared as number four, the most uh, uh, successful uh, um, of the top ten most successful brands. We were ranked number four, and we'd moved up seven places. Uh, on Timol in, in the Q4 last year in the masking category, so that was a huge win for us. Uh, I think Timol is a, is is if you look at the journey that the consumer goes on. Uh, typically, they will hear about a brand through an influencer, and an ins- influencer will resonate if they've got an inspiring story to tell. So it's not product; it's how can this improve your life in an inspiring way. So if you look at when we lo- when we look at which influencers have worked really well for us, it's when they've focused on stories that are around inspiring new ideas and how to improve your life. When that- so we look at that we. Work with them on the sorts of moments that might resonate with a consumer. So it could be you're going for a job, or you've just broken up, or you're getting married, or or uh, um, any anything that uh, um, is a, a moment that's going to resonate with most. Be is a, you know, a pajama party, whatever it is. And how do you inspire? How do you do this in an inspiring, new, different way? That's and that's our sort of content for influencers. And we allow them to really curate their own content. We want them to be genuine and honest about. How it, what it means to them, how they would interact with our brand, and then if there's anything that's relevant to their audience, that's perfect for us. And so it's it's truly I hate the word authentic, but it is an authentic proposition in that regard. And then so they found out about the brand, they found out about the story uh, of Vernalaz. So they then go and look at. Where the brand is, uh, where it's presented in an authorized space. So, Teamal provides you with author, authorized brand platforms. So, when you go to Teamal, you know that that is the brand uh, uh, flagship, and everything you read and see on that brand flagship is true, it's honest, it, it's from the brand. Because in China, of course, there are a thousand resellers selling your brand. So what's the true story? Uh, and trust is a big issue in China, in making sure that you can be trusted. And then from Timor, then they would then typically go to a social platform to understand what other people are saying about the brand. And then they will then engage with their own uh, um, uh, network to say, what is the right product for me from this brand? And then the next point is, how much, how, which channel which which, uh, do I trust the most? Uh, for my purchase and do I go into a department store because I want to touch and feel it so that from a trust point of view that's why department stores still have a role to play because if I can feel it if I can touch it uh, uh, and if I can engage it in the physical way it helps me with my trust uh, um, T mall is a trusted platform so if I buy it from the flagship Ernal aslow store on T mall I know it's a trusted resource. But if I'm a little bit more cavalier, maybe I'll buy it on a cross-border platform and have it imported. Or maybe that's, from a status point of view, I'm buying it internationally. It also has some value. Or if I'm even more cavalier and I'm looking for a deal, I'll go to Taobao because there'll be a reseller on Taobao selling Erno Laszlo maybe 20% cheaper than on Timor. So it really depends on the level of trust and confidence that the consumer has. But Mall, if you look at any of the journeys, is uh, I would say 90% of the consumers will visit us at T-Mall before they make any of those other decisions. So it's very important.
0: Charles, how does this play back to your American strategy and your mm. digital strategy here?
1: Mm. Our American strategy is backwards and coming forwards in the sense that what we're trying to do digitally is to... Uh, reimagine the relationship that we had with our consumers in the department stores so where you would come into the department store and have a, a an, an exchange with an educated um, at Beauty Advisor and get great advice and that person would know everything about you, build a sort of 360 degree view of your life, um, what you like, what you don't like. The the data was extraordinarily rich if you think about how much each person knew about their customers. Uh, We want to replicate that online. So we're we're replatforming our our, our website. Um, We're launching um, May, June this year uh, and it will lead with this uh, human, more human uh, feeling interface, so that it it, it becomes uh, a, a replication of what was the uh, the relationship that we had in the department store environment. In China, we began that way. Uh, if, if you look at our uh, uh, WeChat strategy, as we mentioned earlier, our Weibo strategy, our interaction with our consumers is very one-on-one. Um, so we we uh, recognize. Um, the, the, the success of Erna Laszlo will uh, will depend on our ability to leave our sort of brand ego outside the door, put it back, put it in the street, and allow the consumer to truly own the brand, to guide the brand, to direct the brand. And we do that by bringing the consumer into the heart of the brand. And the more they inform us, and educate us, uh, and inspire us, the more we can serve their needs.
0: Charles, you talked a little bit about department stores, but you. Are still very present in some stores like mm. Nordstrom, and are growing there. Mm. What what did they offer you? What did that setting bring to your customers?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that uh, the the world today is you don't. It's not all or nothing. You know, it's not, I I think you see direct to consumer brands that uh, began in the digital space moving offline and creating pop-ups and even opening their own stores, even the likes of Amazon, you know, rolling out into retail spaces and so on. Uh, um, so we we don't see that it's, it's purist in that regard. We see that our consumers have different needs at different times and want different experiences in different environments. Nordstrom is an interesting partner for us because they are trying new and different things. They're innovating. Uh, um, They're very disciplined as well about maintaining price and so on. So they're not driving growth through discounting, which a lot of the online players are doing. So I respect that strategy. They're very service orientated. So the question is, how can they continue to, to replicate that proposition that what they were built around, if you like, in the digital space. Uh, um, So we're staying... Close to that we know for example when we go into the into the events and promotion uh, um, periods throughout the year it's very engaging we get direct to all of our consumers they bring huge volumes into the stores uh, and people are there for the experience and they're great the trend events are great fun and very engaging and and, and uh, uh, very entertaining on many levels uh, throughout the week however you know tra- traffic is not so great so uh, I think you've got to pick your 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 moments with these parts and work out why you're there and what you can bring to to the party at those different times So we get we, we, we pile in in a big way when there's a lot of traffic a lot of people there and get very engaged with the consumers and go direct to consumer if you like in at that moment and then we, feel, uh, we recognize that that consumer then may shop online or go elsewhere thereafter So they come for the experience.
0: Charles, what's your stance on Sephora Alta and Amazon are those places that you? really want to grow? Are you interested in them?
1: Well, I am. A, I have huge admiration for what they're all doing in different ways. Uh, I think Ulta is probably the most interesting uh, of, of the three because they have such uh, a broad church in, a, in, in terms of the brands that they offer. So they can appeal and do appeal uh, to everyone and anyone. And they've got such a runway ahead of them in terms of digital Absolutely unlimited. Uh, I think Sephora has done a very good job in terms of uh, uh, the excitement and the entertainment and the newness and being cutting edge and innovative and uh, and, and and it's a, you know, a fun experience. Uh, um, but you know, I think Ulta's probably in the American markets specifically the one that's uh, very interesting going forward. Um, we love both, all of them. We work with Sephora.com. Um, we're not in the Sephora. We're not in any of those physical spaces. We we have worked with Amazon and do work with Amazon. We went on Amazon because we went on Sephora and Amazon for the same reasons. Um, we recognise a lot of consumers start their journey searching inside a Sephora or on Amazon online, and the reviews that you see on Amazon are regarded as probably more independent than perhaps reviews you might see on the Sephora or even on a brand site. So who do you trust to come back into this point of? Trust, our independent reviews on Amazon are amazing. And these, you know, they're just individuals... Telling the story like it is, so we see a huge value there. Not seeing that as a big growth driver for us, but definitely from a, a review point of view, very important for us. Mm-hmm. Sephora we have fantastic reviews as well. Again, it's it's a, a meaningful business. I don't in any way want, it's, and it's bigger than Amazon. Uh, and the reviews, but the review strategy is actually quite important for us on Sephora. Ulta we haven't had the pleasure of working with, but I think at some point in the future, a physical uh, relationship and and digital relationship with them would make sense today's change you see it's now about what does the brand bring to those retailers if i if we if we work with Ulta, i think we need to bring uh, um traction in terms of our social uh, um audience uh, we need to be able to we need to bring them a consumer in the old days it was it was the the retailer brought you the consumer you know you put the brand in the retail and they brought all the consumers. I think today the brands have to bring the consumers with them and they have to bring the uh, uh, um, uh, an audience so uh, we 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 were a little bit late uh, in terms of our evolution into term- building our, our digital presence in the United States. Uh, and we've accelerated uh, um, over the last two years, uh, and it's getting very, very interesting now. Uh, our, our, um, our database, for example, is uh, five times bigger than it was even four years ago. Uh, and so that's, that's uh, encouraging itself. And you look at our Insta and our Facebook and so on, the way that's evolving. Uh, so I, I, I think there's come, there will come a moment where Ulta will look at us, or Sephora will look at us, and they will recognize the value that we bring, not just in terms of the consumer profile and the fact that there's a lot of data to support that we should be there, but also from a point of view, our social strategy, our innovation, and the level of engagement. And actually, the, 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 the basket size and the repeat purchase, if you want to get down to that sort of granular level, we're really in the top percentage. If you look at all of our part, all the data that comes from the digital partners we work with, we're right up there in the top five or top 10 of all the brands.
0: Charles, before we started recording, you mentioned that you wanted Erno Laszlo to be clean and sustainable by 2020, and that meant an environmental credit. What exactly did you mean by that?
1: Well, I believe that uh, morally it's the right thing to do uh, for us as a brand to uh, uh, we can't spend our time as a brand uh, trying to enhance and improve the lives of our consumers if on the other hand that we're doing things that we think are wrong for example manufacturing products that can only end up in landfill yeah, I think that's, that's that, that doesn't uh, um, you know, doesn't translate to a long-term positive outcome so uh, we're, we're approaching uh, this on two levels clean to us means that we want to make sure that all of our formulas are clean by a certain standard so we've adopted adopted the Sephora clean list is our standard we think it's 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 universal everyone understands what it means it's not going to be confusing so do you or do you not meet that that criteria and by the middle of 2020 our entire range will be cleaned by the sephora uh, clean list standard the sustainability part is a different uh, this is an ongoing process that will take Years to continue to improve, but we've again drawn a red line that says nothing we manufacture needs to go to landfill. Everything that we uh, create and produce will be able to be recycled. But we're going to go beyond that um, so that we can uh, start to do things that, if you like, um, have a credit. So if you if you think about it, most people are thinking, how do we lessen our footprint? How do we reduce the impact? I want to go the other way. I want to say, well, how do you pay back on the debt, the environmental debt? We've all drawn down on Mother Nature's bank, if you like. We're all in overdraft. So how do we start to pay back that debt? And so anything that we do, I want it to to have a, a credit, uh, have an ability to, to 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 pay back on that. So yes, on one level it will be uh, you know sustainable, but uh, um, is it partnering with an organisation that's I know, recycling ocean plastics, or a community that's doing something, or is there a, 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 an income that we can derive from that that we can then reinvest so that we really are moving into the positive rather than lessening, the, uh, less, lessening our, our negative impact, if that makes sense.
0: A lot of brands right now are thinking about how they can be purpose-led. How do you think that, me- how do you think that message is going to be communicated to the customer?
1: Well, I don't think that we are going to... Our, our clean and sustainability platform is, is not something that uh, we are going to use a marketing proposition. Uh, it's the new norm. I think everyone should behave like this and if we're a 90 year old brand and we've taken the the steps to reformulate our entire range and to re-engineer our entire supply chain what that means is that anyone else can do it so I, i hope that's going to be very inspiring for a lot of other brands that are similar to us in terms of their infrastructure as far as the consumer is concerned they, I think they're going to just expect that. So uh, we want to lead with the proper the product, what it does, what it what it me- it's meant to do, how it's going to make them feel the the efficacy of the product. But at the same time, I want to remove any any negativity. Any, I don't want them to have any regret that you know I, I wish Anna Laszlo didn't. Package this in such a heavy box, or this cell. We we dropped cellophane, for example, two years ago. Uh, um, A lot of our customers, some of our customers, came back and said, "Oh, you you used to be so much more luxurious." But so maybe that's a negative for some of the consumers. But for us, cellophane was an unnecessary uh, step. We then dropped liners. So now we have no liners in our boxes. And slowly, bit by bit, we're making these these moves. Uh, we believe, ultimately, that when the consumer interrogates those decisions, they recognize we're doing the right thing for ourselves, morally, and also for them.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Charles. It was great having you today.
1: My great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription of Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members have access to unlimited content, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's 80% off by entering the code INTRO at checkout. For more information, head to glossy.co slash subscribe. Before you go, be sure to sign up for our new Glossy Beauty and Wellness Briefing a weekly newsletter that will keep you up to date with our coverage and analysis of these growing industries. Sign up is simple and easy. Just head to glossy.co slash beauty email to join today. We'll talk to you next week.